0: Common Sense with Dr. Ben Carson.
1: Well, welcome everyone to another episode of Common Sense. I'm your host, Ben Carson, and we have an exciting program for you today. You know, whatever happened to the whole concept of a colorblind society? You know, that used to be the goal we had of judging people by the content of their character, not by the color of their skin, And, uh, you know, there's been huge progress that's made just in my lifetime in racial relationships in this country. And, you know, that doesn't mean that more doesn't need to be done. More always needs to be done. But it is so different now than it was when I was a kid. And now we're being told and kids are being told in schools that the most important determinant of what happens to you is the color of your skin. And the whole concept of color blindness in a society, they say is a racist concept. How in the world did we get to a place like this and to get there so quickly in our society? Well, I'd like to welcome to the program today our good friend and a great patriot, Larry Elder. Larry is a New York Times best selling author, a nationally syndicated radio host. Podcast host of the Larry Elder Show and uh, recently ran in a special election against Gavin Newsom for governor of California. Boy, we would have been a whole lot better off if he'd won. (laughs) But, uh, you know, there are more things to come in the future. And I bet there's something you don't know about him. I bet you didn't know that he has won an Emmy and has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. That's pretty cool. So, Larry, you have a a recent uh, movie, Uncle Tom 2, which I was privileged to have a part in. And uh, I'm just excited to have you here. But this is a very powerful and provocative documentary, purposely, I'm sure, but it doesn't have to be. Why is this movie important in the political climate of our society today?
0: Well, it's important because of what you just now said. Uh, the ideal was for a colorblind society. Fast forward, we have a movement called Black Lives Matter, which Dr. Carson, 85% of black people support. On their website, initially, they attacked the nuclear intact family as a Western construct. The founders of Black Lives Matter are self-described trained Marxists. And Marx was an atheist who wanted to dethrone God and oppose private property, which meant he opposed entrepreneurship. The reason this is important is because, as we explore in Uncle Tom 1 and in Uncle Tom 2, the reason the Black community was able to survive and continue to grow post-slavery, despite horrific challenges, despite uh, lynching, despite KKK, despite Jim Crow, is because of a belief in patriotism. If you read the speeches of Frederick Douglass, uh, they're riddled with um, odes to American ideals, even though he knew that we were not living up to those ideals. Belief in God, Judeo-Christian values, Belief in family uh, and belief in entrepreneurship to the point where in 1940, before all the civil rights legislation of the 60s, uh, mostly before Brown versus education, uh, 87 percent of blacks lived below the federally defined level of poverty. Twenty years later, 1960, that number had declined to 47 percent, a 40 point drop in 20 years. That's the greatest 20 year period of economic uh, success for blacks in American history. Why? Because most kids came from two-parent households. Belief in God. Most kids went to church. Belief in family and belief in patriotism. Fast forward, all of those things are now completely and totally under attack, even as America has never been less racist. I mean, my goodness, Barack Obama won with a greater percentage of the white vote than John Kerry did four years earlier. He got re-elected despite governing over the worst economic recovery uh, in American history. You were briefly frontrunner when you ran for president. Uh, America has never been less racist. This is the only majority white uh, country in the world where a black person has been elected president. Uh, and I remember when he ran in 2007, I believe it was, Dr. Carson, there was a Gallup poll. He was competing Obama against Hillary for the Democratic side. And Mitt Romney, a Mormon, was competing against uh, John McCain, who was in his early 70s on the Republican side. And so Gallup asked, how many of you would not vote for a black person uh, for president? 5% of Americans said they would not vote for a black person. How many would not vote for a female, referring to Hillary? 11% said they wouldn't vote for a female. How many wouldn't vote for a Mormon? 22% said they wouldn't vote for a Mormon. How many wouldn't vote for somebody who would be as old as John McCain would have been? He would have been 72. We think of that as young now, but back then it was perceived to be old. 42% said they would not vote for somebody as old as John McCain. So this black guy... Obama had a smaller hurdle than Hillary, uh, than John McCain, and then Mitt Romney. And we're still talking about racism being systemically racist. It's ridiculous. And Obama, when I first saw him give his first interview, Dr. Carson, the 60 Minutes, I'm at home by myself, and this senator was catching Hillary, otherwise they wouldn't have had him on 60 Minutes. He wasn't a frontrunner yet. And Morley Safer, the correspondent, said, Senator, if you don't win, will it be because of your race? So I sat back and I said, let's see how this man answers. Is he going to give what I call a victocrat answer the way uh, Al Sharpton would have or Jesse Jackson would have, both of whom ran for president? And he said, no, if I don't win, it will be because I have not articulated a vision that the American people can embrace. I said, hallelujah. I'm not going to vote for him. I don't vote for tax spin, regulate Obamacare type people. But at least he'll stop the nonsense that America holds you back because you're black. What did he do when he got in? Every single time he had an opportunity to repeat what he said then, he picked up the race card and played it from the Cambridge police acted stupidly to if I had a son, he looked like Trayvon to America has uh, racism in its DNA uh, to embracing the Black Lives Matter movement to talking about Ferguson in a speech before the United Nations, even though Michael Brown did not have his hands up, did not say don't shoot. He had Al Sharpen in the White House over 70 or 80 times who, in in my opinion, is America's preeminent race card hustler, every time he had a chance to say something uh, conciliatory and to knock off the nonsense, he went the wrong way to the point where when he entered office, both blacks and whites thought race elections were going to be better. When he left, both, both blacks and whites thought they had gotten worse. How is that possible? How is that possible? He kept playing the race card. And if a guy like Obama led a charm life, best school in uh, prep school in Hawaii, goes to Occidental, goes to Columbia, goes to Harvard, becomes president of the Harvard Law Review, writes an autobiography in his early 20s, becomes U.S. senator, becomes president. If he's still going whining about racism, maybe just maybe we were wrong, say a lot of people in America. So things got worse. And I put a lot of that at the feet of Barack Obama.
1: Absolutely. You know, I've always been kind of interested in what uh, Khrushchev said 60 years ago to Eisenhower. He said, your grandchildren's children will live under communism, and we won't have to fire a shot. Obviously, he knew something, didn't he? And he knew that all they had to do is gain control of the educational system so they could indoctrinate our kids, gain control of the media so they could spoon-feed us only what they wanted us to know, replace faith in God with faith in government, and raise the national debt to astronomical levels so you could justify massive taxation, redistribution of wealth, and complete dependence on the government. It seems like he was an orb. I mean, <laughs> he well, well, obviously
0: that, pegged uh, it. You, you know about that. You saw the movie, the, uh, that uh, clip we have of the KGB uh, defector, uh, Yuri uh, Asminov. He says that the highest apparatchik could not have been uh, uh, more optimistic about what we've done in America. We've, we've turned Americans against each other. We've taken over the schools. We have a bunch of mushy-headed academics uh, who are teaching our kids. Uh, and he said, we're setting you against each other. Uh, and they use one of the uh, uh, you know sensitive points of America, race. And during the 2016 campaign, uh, the uh, the Russians purchased a bunch of um, Facebook ads. Half of them were anti-black, half of them were pro-black. All designed to set us against each other uh, and to probe and probe and probe at a sensitive part in America. Uh, and and you know the Russians were stunned that they were able to pull this off. And we're still mm-hmm. at each other's throats. When. Again, America has never been more fair, never been a place where somebody could realize his God-given potential to the, to the greatest extent possible in all of human history. One of the things in Uncle Tom, too, we talk about all these Haitians who are lining up trying to get in here, uh, Central Americans lining up trying to get in here, and we quote a pastor named Vody Bauckham who says, there is no other country in the world where blacks would rather be, unless, of course, you're a black person
1: who was born here. Yes, uh, you know, that's kind of uh, interesting because a lot of black people get offended if you talk about how great it is to be in America. They say, you've been better off in Africa. Really? Would we be better off in Africa? Would a person of Irish descent be better off in Ireland? Would a person of Germany descent be better off in Germany? No, we're all better off here in this country that we all helped to create. I think it's wonderful. But getting back to Marxism, why is Marxism slash communism and faith in God incompatible?
0: Well, uh, Marx uh, wanted to dethrone God, uh, and Marx felt that religion was the opiate of the masses, which is why Marx felt that the so-called proletariat did not rise up and overthrow the bourgeois class, because religion made them accept their conditions uh, and did not rebel against their conditions. So uh, it's completely incompatible with religion. Uh, and what's interesting about this is that Marx has a superficial appeal. Obviously, my good friend Thomas Sowell, whom I know you know, was a Marxist, including after he graduated from uh, uh, economics school at University of Chicago. Uh, he taught under people like George Stigler, uh, Milton Friedman, and he was still a Marxist. Uh, it's got a superficial appeal because, uh, as Thomas Sowell told me, how is to explain these inequalities? He get on the bus. Uh, and and go through Harlem, and then he go through a very nice area of New York, and he couldn't figure out any other explanation for this. And so he bought Mm -hmm. the lie. A lot of people do. Uh, So it's got a superficial appeal. And if you don't have God, you don't have a belief in Judeo-Christian values, don't have an understanding of right and wrong, and don't know anything about history, about how every country that has started out communism has ended up in death and destruction, you can be deluded.
1: Absolutely. No question about that. And, you know, black families have in the past been very strong. That's how we got through slavery. Right. Uh, It was family structure. It was faith in God. That's how we got through Jim Crowism. We got through uh, all kinds of prejudicial behaviors in our society. What do you think has really changed significantly
0: Again, the, the, the welfare state, I think a big turning point, Dr. Carson, was when Lyndon Johnson, I believe with the best of intentions, launched a so-called war on poverty. Since then, we spent over $22 trillion on so-called poverty programs, And the percentage of black kids born outside of wedlock has gone from 25% to 70%. Now 25% of white kids are born outside of wedlock. Almost half of Hispanic kids are. 40% of all American kids are now entering the world without a father married to the mother. And what we've done is we've incentivized women to marry the government, and we've incentivized men to abandon their financial and moral responsibility. And we substituted uh, government uh, for family. And uh, that's the the biggest social problem facing this country. It's not inflation. uh, It's not the need for critical race theory. uh, It's not gas prices. All those things are important. But the biggest problem we're facing right now is a large number of children who enter the world without a father married to the mother.
1: Absolutely. It's a huge problem. And when you look at uh, one in three children grow up without a biological father in their home, it's much worse than that in the black community, as you just uh, mentioned. But kids that grew up without a father are 20 times more likely to have behavioral disorder, five times more likely to commit suicide, 32 times more likely to run away, 10 times more likely to abuse a chemical substance, 20 times more likely to end up in prison. I mean, it seems to me like a a responsible society would take note of this, and say maybe we should have policies that recognize these kinds of problems and try to deal with them in an appropriate way, but they don't. And, you know, when I came to HUD, I was pretty convinced that it would be not that difficult to get a lot of programs passed that created family structure and uh, that encouraged independence from the government. Boy, was I wrong about that. There are a lot of people who do not want to see those things happen because that's how they control population.
0: You know, and what's bizarre about all of this, Dr. Carson, you can make an argument that uh, four of the most prominent so-called black leaders, a term I'm not fond of, are people like Barack Obama, Al Sharpton, uh, Louis Farrakhan, Jesse Jackson. Barack Obama's first book was called Dreams from My Father, where he talked about the angst that he felt because he grew up without his biological father. The last time he saw his biological father, he was 10 years old. And he was in deep, deep pain about that all his life. Al Sharpton had a nice middle-class life until his father ran off with another woman and down to the hood he went. Jesse Jackson's mother was a teenage mother who was impregnated by the married man who lived next door. Uh, And Jesse Jackson grew up in South Carolina when that sort of thing was unusual. And he was taunted, Jesse ain't got no daddy, Jesse ain't got no daddy. Farrakhan's mother was estranged from her husband. She had a boyfriend but briefly took back up with the husband and got pregnant with Louis Farrakhan and tried to abort him with a coat hanger. My point is, these are four of the most prominent so-called black leaders in America. Do they talk about the importance of a father? I know Farrakhan has to, to an extent with the Million Man March, but most of them don't. Their, their game for most of them is systemic racism, systemic racism, oh, and by the way, systemic racism. Uh, when they're ignoring the 800 pound elephant in the room, which is a large number of black kids who enter the world without a father
1: married to the mother. Absolutely. And obviously I grew up largely without a father, but I I had an exceptional mother. She just uh, was way off the end of the bell curve in terms of wanting to make sure that we succeeded. And uh, she was always talking about what kind of father we should be when we grow up. And she was always pointing to different people and saying, no, that's not your example. That's not what you want to be. But when she found somebody who was really good, she tried to make sure that we had some time to spend with those individuals. And, you know, that, that made a real impression on me. And, you know, I was extraordinarily busy uh, as a neurosurgeon and would not have had a whole lot of time for my kids if my mother hadn't made that impression on me. Right. But I was traveling a lot. I was giving talks all over the world. I always made it a condition that my family go with me. So the kids all had frequent flyer cards on every airline. They traveled all over the world. And uh, they knew who I was. And, you know, we had a chance to really bond and become a, a close family because of that. And I think that made a big difference. They've all turned out to be uh, you know, exceptional young men and fathers. They're all married. They all have children and are raising them that same way, too. And that's why the whole family structure is so important. And, uh, you know, the other thing that's so important, I think, is is people cooperating with others. Another statistic that I found very interesting, this was given to me by Cal Ripken. Uh, He said, 90% of CEOs played team sports. 90% of prison inmates didn't.
0: Interesting. I know about your life, and it's an extraordinary, inspiring story, what it shows you is that if you are raised without a father, it is certainly not a death sentence. You had a responsible mom in your in your house. My father did not. My father never knew his biological father. Uh, he was kicked out of his house when he was 13 years old by his irresponsible mother. You're talking about a black boy born in 1915, Athens, Georgia, Jim Crow South at the beginning of the Great Depression. And my father simply went down, picked up dirt, for uh, trash for people. Ultimately, he became a Pullman porter on the trains. That's how he ended up in L.A., Because he came out on a run before the war, before World War II, Dr. Carson, and he was shocked. You could walk through the front door of a restaurant and get served. He made a mental note, maybe someday I'll relocate to California. Pearl Harbor, my dad, joins the Marines. I asked him why one time, and he said two reasons. I know you know what I'm going to say. The first is they go where the action is, and the second is I love the uniforms. So my dad was stationed on the island of Guam, World War II. He was a staff sergeant in charge of cooking for the colored soldiers. War is over, goes back to Chattanooga, Tennessee, where he met and married my mom, and he was told by restaurant, restaurant after restaurant, we don't hire N-words. My dad went to an unemployment office to get him a job, and the lady says, you went through the wrong door. My dad goes out to the hall and sees colored only, goes through that door to the very same lady who sent him out. My dad came home to my mother and said, this is nonsense, I'm going to LA, I'm gonna get me a job as a cook, I'll send for you. My dad walks around here in LA where I'm sitting right now for a, a day and a half, and he's told, you don't have any references. My dad said, I need references to make ham and eggs. They treated him the same way in LA as in Chattanooga, maybe a little more polite about it. My dad goes to an unemployment office, this time just one door, lady calls him up after a day and a half, she says, I have a job. I'm not sure if you're going to want it. My dad says, of course, I'm going to want it. I'm starting a family. What is it? She says the job cleaning toilet and the bisco brand bread. My dad did that for 10 years, took a second full time job uh, at another bread company cleaning toilets, cooked for a family on the weekends and went to night school two or three nights a week to get his GED. The man never slept, which is why he was so cranky all the time. Uh, And um, my father always told my brothers and me, hard work wins. You get out of life what you put into it. You cannot control the outcome, Larry, but you are 100% in control of the effort. And before you complain about what somebody did to you or said to you, go to the nearest mirror, ask yourself, what could I have done to have changed the outcome? And finally, he said this, no matter how hard you work, how good you are, Larry, sooner or later, bad things are going to happen to you. How you deal with those bad things will tell your mother and me if we raised a man. And Dr. Carson, my dad was a lifelong Republican. And here's what he said about the Democratic Party. Democrats want to give you something for nothing. When you try to get something for nothing, you almost always end up getting nothing for something. And he thought the welfare state was the worst thing that ever happened to black families. And he didn't go to Harvard and get a PhD. He never studied sociology, but he knew what damage it would do. And fast forward, everything my dad said about the welfare state uh, has come to pass.
1: Well, he was certainly, obviously, a lot smarter than a lot of people who did go to Harvard and did get a PhD. Right. <laughs> he was wise. Right. And, you know, wisdom actually, I think, comes from God. There's a, a lot of uh, idiots, quite frankly, who have all kinds of degrees behind their name. And I think Saul Alinsky understood that. And he knew how to utilize those people. And it was Vladimir Lenin who was to attribute it with the term useful idiots. And getting something done, you get them to actually do things that are actually counter to their own good. But you get them caught up in it, and they become some of your strongest advocates. And uh, I think a lot of the people who have embraced many of the extremely left-wing things that are going on in our society today fit into that category. Uh, They've been deceived. They've been manipulated. And if they actually knew all the facts, they would probably be moving in a very different direction. And uh, part of the problem, I I think, is that we have a media today that is, for some strange reason, full of useful idiots, uh, full of people who don't even recognize that the first thing that happens with Marxist communist regimes is they completely control the media. So they don't recognize that they're preparing their own graveyard. And uh, they seem not to have a very good grasp of history. And that's a real problem. It's it's a huge problem, Dr. Carson. Let's, let's take arguably the most egregious racial
0: incident that's taken place in the last few years. And that's the death of George Floyd uh, at the hands of Derek Chauvin. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe the verdict was trust. Uh, but there is zero evidence, zero evidence that whatever uh, Derek Chauvin did was because of George Floyd's race. The lead prosecutor was a black man, and he took great pains during his uh, uh, opening statement uh, to say the police in general are not on trial, the Minneapolis police in general are not on trial, this individual is on trial, and he never argued that Derek Stroman was motivated because of George Floyd's race. And um, there were four people that were involved. Uh, two of them were white, including Derek Chauvin. One of them was Hmong, H-M-O-G. The other one had a father uh, who was from Africa. I think he was from uh, from Nigeria. Uh, and so, but we had four months of protests in the streets where there was at least $2 billion worth of damage, at least 25 people were killed, and at least 2,000 police officers uh, were injured. All because of this assumption uh, that, would George, that George George Floyd's death had something to do with his race when there's zero evidence of that. And just a few days ago, there were three white uh, Arkansas police officers who beat the crap out of this white suspect. Kneed him, kicked him, punched him. Uh, and it was viewed millions of times on social media. But it was a one day story on the national media. Why? Because the individual who was beaten happened to be white and it did not fit the script. Even though the police kill twice as many unarmed whites every year as they kill unarmed blacks, they kill twice as many uh, whites as they kill uh, blacks. But the media couldn't care less when that happens, to the point where you have this complete, total misunderstanding of what's really going on. There's a magazine called Policemag.com. And they talked about, Dr. Carson, a survey of uh, people that self described as very liberal and people who self described as liberal. And they were asked, how many unarmed black men did the police kill in 2019. Mm-hmm. And half of the self-described very liberal thought they killed 1,000. 8% mm-hmm. thought they killed 10,000. Mm-hmm. And the, the regular old liberals, 39% thought the police killed 1,000 on our black men in 2019. And 5% thought they killed 10,000. The answer, according to the Washington Post database, was 12. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now talk about a gap between what you think and what's really going on, which is driving this nonsense of defund the police and this belief that the police are engaging in systemic racism. If you are that deluded about the facts, of course, you're going to believe nonsense.
1: Yes. And close to that same time, there was another incident very similar to the George Floyd incident. Uh, knee on the neck, face on the ground, saying, I'm going to die. And he did die. Very, very little attention. Because right. the victim was white. That's it right. didn't fit the narrative, so who cares? What a problem. And uh, I have some good friends in Australia, and we talked to them, and they said, what's going on? The police are killing all the black men, because they're playing that stuff 24-7, making it seem like this is something that's going on all the time.
0: have yeah, it on a loop, uh, Dr. Carson, I- I'm doing TV now, Epic Times TV, but when I did radio... I had an antagonist named Gloria who used to call me all the time, a black female. Now, Larry, you keep talking about all these unarmed white men who get killed. I can't think of a single one. I said, Tony Timba, Dallas. Uh-huh. <laughs> and she didn't know who he was. Uh, it's on YouTube. Oh, you can watch it yourself. Uh, and he was knelt on, just as you pointed out. Uh, and they were laughing. They were joking. He ended up dying. Uh, and um, here in but her then own... he was charged. Her own... T- that's right. The, the police were not charged in her own city she was completely
1: unaware of this man i mean i tell you what (laughs) it's pretty amazing well we're gonna have to take a quick break we'll be right back with more from larry elder And we're back with our fascinating guest, uh, Larry Elder. Uh, Many of you know him. A lawyer, a uh, radio show host, a podcast host, a previous candidate for governor of the state of uh, California, uh, a man who has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. (laughs) I could go on for quite some time. But, um, you know, why is it, Larry, that you think... That our young people today are so attracted to socialism. There have been some recent surveys that show up to 50% of them would prefer socialism. Do they even know what it is?
0: And I think that's what it is. I think they are completely unaware that socialism really means government ownership of property. Uh, they think of the term as egalitarianism, uh, as equality, as equality of outcomes, they haven't really thought deeply about it. So I, I think a lot of it is just complete and total ignorance of what socialism really is. Thomas Sowell once said that socialism uh, has a track record so abysmal only a professor of college could support it.
1: <laughs> and you know, when I, I I think a lot of them think that socialism as being familiar with social media, they, they they really haven't looked further into it than that. But Another thing that I find very, very interesting, people talk about systemic racism and the fact that, you know, the income for black families is so much less than that for white families, the income gap. But if you look at Nigerian families in America, Ghanaian families in America, there's very little, if any, income gap. And why wouldn't our sociologists particularly at our black universities, be interested in that phenomenon? Why do they just kind of ignore that, do you think?
0: Again, because it diverged from the script. The script is that black people are in peril because of systemic racism. You point out, as you pointed out, that uh, Nigerian families per capita earn more money than white European uh, families. Uh, it, it blows up the narrative. Uh, this, just as the fact that um, a uh, Asian applying for a mortgage is more likely to have that mortgage approved than even a white person, Uh, because it blows up the narrative. Uh, Mm -hmm. I remember when Barack Obama was in civil practice, Dr. Carson, he joined a bunch of other lawyers and uh, filed a class action lawsuit against Citigroup because there were 186 uh, would-be black borrowers who were turned down for loans. So Citigroup said, all right, screw it. I'll, I'll give them the loans. Gave them the loans. Fast forward a few years later, virtually every single one of the 186 lost a home. Several of them went into bankruptcy. A couple of them even then publicly said, you know, you ought not give people loans if they can't afford to pay them back. Hello, and the point is that the, the banks were turning them down because they were not credit worthy. Yet you have this narrative that they were being turned down because of systemic racism, which, by the way, is what led to the housing meltdown, two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Banks changed lending criteria because of this lie. They were they were pressured by carrot and by stick to change lending criteria. So a whole bunch of people who shouldn't have owned homes ended up getting homes. A large percentage of them were black. And that is why from 2010 to 2013, when Obama was president, black net worth fell by a full one-third. I know you know this from your position as a former head head chairman. Uh, And I blame Obama because had Obama, as a private practice lawyer, not pushed this lie, there wouldn't have been the pressure on banks to change lending standards. And people that would have been perfectly better off renting would have been renting instead of buying homes, putting money into that homes, and then losing everything
1: when the recession came. Absolutely. Now, what i mean you it it couldn't be more crisply explained than you just explained it. I hope people are listening and understand what you said but uh you know talking about Marxist ideologies and our schools, what are your thoughts about c r t
0: it's it's a it's a cancer it it's a poison uh, I've often said uh Dr. Carson that whoever said Uh, compound interest is the greatest force in the universe, never encountered white guilt. A bunch (laughs) of white people are pushing this or either buying it. I've seen a speech by Ibram X. Kendi, the anti-racist, and all these white people were sitting there listening to his nonsense, nodding and nodding and nodding because of this huge amount of white guilt. Uh, It's nonsense. It's teaching little black boys that they're eternal victims and little white boys and girls that they're eternal oppressors. Uh, Nothing could be further from the truth. To tell somebody that they are handicapped because of their race, because of their gender, because of their religion in America is an absolute atrocity, and so many of our educators are guilty of this.
1: And it's hard to understand how they perceive that this is going to lead to something good. What what good could it possibly lead to if you have a whole generation of people thinking that they're victims and a whole generation thinking they're oppressors? I'm I'm still struggling to find where that would do any good. I haven't seen it, but uh, you know, along that same line, you probably heard recently the Minneapolis uh, public school union, has in their contract, we will lay off white teachers, regardless of seniority before people of color. In, know, regard, in
0: regards, in regards to quality, <laughs> in regards exactly. Of quality. I mean. Ha- Honestly, (laughs) 85 percent of black eighth graders right now in America cannot read or do math at uh, grade proficiency levels. And we're going to lay off teachers, potentially the best teachers, because they happen to be white. And the implication, of course, is that I can't learn math. I can't learn geography. I can't learn history if my teacher is a teacher of a different color. Then how did I survive? I didn't have a black teacher until I was in the seventh grade. All my teachers were white. Half of my classmates until middle school were white. Uh, and somehow, some way, I learned how to read, write uh, at, at, uh, at proficiency that were above grade level. I don't know how I did that
1: because I had white teachers. Well, you know, what the left proposes is that you don't pay attention to what you see or what you hear or what your heart tells you. Just listen to them. They will tell you the truth. It's just like, it was funny. I was looking at something on the news the other day, and the question was asked about uh, the tennis player, uh, Djokovic, Mm -hmm. who is not immunized and therefore can't play in the U.S. Open. Uh, But we have all these people coming across the southern border. And the press secretary said, well, they're not actually coming across the border. (laughs) Uh, I, I mean, could she, could she possibly be that ignorant? But, you know, it goes back to their narrative. Don't believe your eyes and your ears and your heart. Just listen to us. We'll tell you what you're supposed to believe. And there's some people, unfortunately, who are simple enough to take that. And they've swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. And it's a real problem in our society today.
0: And I think part of it, Dr. Carson, is that freedom is scary. Uh, if if you're really free and life is a series of decisions or acts of omission or commission, and you're not where you want to go, you're not where you want to be. That means it's on you. Far easier to blame something else: systemic racism, in, enduring racism, foundational racism, which is a term that uh, Beta or work used. A lot of people feel a great deal of comfort if they can point to somebody else and say, "That's the bad guy. This is why I don't have what I want."
1: Yeah. Now, I want to ask you your thoughts on Saul Alinsky. It seemed to me like uh, he advocated creating problems and dissatisfaction so that you could have a reason to fundamentally change a society. What did you think of him?
0: That's exactly what he advocated in his book, uh, Rules for Radicals, which we talk about in Uncle Tom, too, A Great Deal. Uh, And uh, the whole idea is to create a boogeyman, create a villain, uh, so that the institutions of America are undermined. Uh, And he's done a great deal of damage along those lines. Uh, Take a look at what happened recently uh, at that uh, amusement park called Sesame Place in Philadelphia. I had never heard of it until uh, I read the story about the Rosita Muppets character allegedly ignoring little black girls and little black boys. Uh, and, uh, all of a sudden there were a whole bunch of videos where this character apparently were high fiving the white kids and not high fiving the black kids. By the way, we have no idea, uh, the race of the individual who's inside that costume. For all we know, it might have been a black person. But even if it's true, even if it's true that this character was ignoring a little black kids, do you go to World War III on that? Or do you tell your black kid that every now and then there's going to be some jerk, uh, but don't assume that these jerks rule the world? How you respond to this, Uh, Is entirely up to you and entirely up to the parents. But in comes Jesse Jackson. Mm -hmm. He writes a letter to Sesame Place demanding that they put a black person on the board of directors, demanding that they all undergo sensitivity training, and demanding that they uh, patronize uh, black uh, subcontractors. He didn't say one word about the Baltimore family that filed the class action lawsuit from a town where 13 public high schools in Baltimore have kids that are zero proficient in math. Another half a dozen high schools in Baltimore where only 1% are. That's half of the high schools in Baltimore where either the kids are 0% proficient in math or only 1%. And Jesse Jackson did not say one word about Philadelphia where Sesame Place is, on track for more homicides than any year in their history, and almost all of those who are killed are black people. No letter about that, but you let some uh, little girl get get dissed by Rosita, and out comes Jesse Jackson. That's the kind of thing that Saul Olinsky would be would be doing doing high fives. Part- <laughs> <That's laughs> <so. laughs> Thank you. <Yeah.
1: laughs> it's true. Well, I, I will say for one of the the, the members of the left, uh, Ben Crump. Uh, He has come out against the Baltimore school system and these people who are robbing the black kids of an education and a chance to be successful. So uh, I will give him credit for that. And, And I encourage people to really begin to look at the issues. Don't look at party, party affiliation. Look at the issues and what are the impacts of the policies that are being advocated by various people. And make sure you inform yourself of what those are. Because, you know, most people, when they go into the voting booth, they're just looking for a name that looks familiar. Um, I mean, it could be Satan. They don't care. Uh, I know that name. Yep, that's the one I'm voting for. And in many cases, it is Satan. And uh, people have got to inform themselves. Because what we're talking about in elections that are coming up are people who love America, who love our system and appreciate it, who understand and love our Constitution, and people who want to fundamentally change us into something else, into a model that has never worked anywhere else. So when you're voting, you're voting for what kind of society is your child or your grandchild going to grow up in? And uh, if, if, if you're not willing to invest some time and effort and to seeing whose policies are more likely to be helpful for the future of your progeny, then you're going to get what you deserve. And I think we can do better than that.
0: Absolutely. We were talking about Baltimore, Dr. Carson. Uh, Freddie Gray died in police custody in that van a few years ago. At the time, the mayor was Black. The number one and number two people running the police department were Black. Three of the six officers who were charged was black. A judge before whom two of the officers tried their cases and found them not guilty, by the way, was black. The state attorney who brought the charges was black. City council, all Democrat, majority black. The US attorney at the time was black. Oh, and by the way, so was the president of the United States, Barack Obama, black. And I'm reminded of that joke that Wanda to used to say, how are you gonna complain about the man when you are the man? And still we're talking about systemic racism when blacks are running the system? Honestly, wake up. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Absolutely, you are so right. And we'll be right back for a brief closing with uh, Larry Adler, our wonderful guest. For our final segment with uh, with Larry Elter. you know Larry, you know you've been called all kinds of names, uh, the black face of white supremacy, uh, you know Uncle Tom. You know I've I've had the same thing. I had uh, Chelsea Handler said I was a white supremacist. You know why why do, what, what keeps you fighting? Well, you, could, I, I... You, could, you could relax. You could go travel the world. Just have fun and enjoy the rest of your life. Why do you do this?
0: Believe me, it's tempting. Uh, My girlfriend and I have (laughs) talked about this. Uh, I've done well enough so that I could really kick back and and enjoy the rest of my life. I'm 70 years old. Uh, But I feel I have a moral, a spiritual, and a patriotic obligation uh, to leave this place better than the way I found it. I would not be happy with Larry Elder. Uh, but I'm used to these all these names, Dr. Carson. Uh, I've been on radio and TV now for 40 years. I've been called the, the black face of white supremacy, an Oreo, a coconut, uh, I'm Sambo. Uh, I was called the anti <laughs> white one time. But I tell you what, I've rarely been called, and that's wrong. Uh, I'll get, be called names, but when I talk about what's going on with our schools, when I talk about what's going on with our family, nobody or rarely does anybody say your numbers are wrong, your stats are wrong, uh, here's what's really going on. All they have is names, which shows you they are out of ammo. And that just shows you how the Saul Alinsky formula has been so brilliant. Not only do you have people not looking at the facts, but when a fact bringer tells them what's going on, I'm the bad guy. I'm mm-hmm. the Uncle Tom. I'm the sellout. You can't be more, more successful than that. That's like The Sting, the movie The Sting with Robert Redford and Paul Newman. The most successful con is when the con doesn't even know he's been conned uh, and blames somebody else so they've conned black people into thinking that America is systemically racist. And when you, when I and other black conservatives come along and say, wait a minute, pick up your cards, play them to the best of your ability, uh, and you can realize your God-given potential to a greater degree than you can in America anywhere else, we're the bad guys. That's how brilliant people like Saul Alinsky and Marx and Lenin have been.
1: Absolutely. I have a, a next-door neighbor in uh, Florida, and uh, he was born in the Cape Verde Islands. And he tells us the story of uh when he was a, a boy every morning going down to the creek with a bucket. Uh that's that's where they got their drinking water and all the water from. And uh today uh he moved to America when he was ten or eleven. Today he's a billionaire. That's America. Yeah. That yeah. is America <laughs> And an American, an American,
0: American doctor America, Ben Carson living next door to a billionaire. <laughs> that's
1: America. That's, that's right. America. <laughs> and 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 he's a black billionaire. So you know, keep that in mind. <laughs> right. Um, but you know, one thing that I've noticed in recent years, I used to go to conservative gatherings, and I would be the only black face. That's not the case anymore, not by a long shot. Uh, what do you think is helping many more minorities turn to conservatism?
0: Well, I use the following numbers, 4, 6, 8, 12. Uh, when Obama ran in 2008, 4% of black people voted for the Republican Party. Uh, to, uh, 2012, when he ran for re-election after presiding over, uh, as I said earlier, the worst economic recovery since 1949, 6% of blacks voted for the Republican Party. Trump runs in 2016 and says famously, what do you have to lose? Talked about schools, talked about crime, talked about families. 8% of blacks voted for the Republican Party. Then when he delivered the best economy ever for black Americans, supported school choice, did something about the borders because the people that are most threatened by illegal aliens are unskilled black people working in the inner city. Uh, They have to compete with them for jobs. And the presence of illegal alien labor puts downward pressure on their wages. He did criminal justice justice reform that allowed about 5,000 mostly black men to have their sentences reconsidered and reduced an average of 70 months. He pardoned Jack Johnson. He commuted Alice to Alice Johnson. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did the opportunity zones to lower taxes and, and regulations in urban areas to spark economic development. He got 12 percent of the vote. That's a 50 percent increase over four years earlier. And almost 20 percent of black men voted for him. So it's going in the right direction because black people are looking at the results of left-wing policies. And that is why they are doubling down on yelling and screaming about how systemically racist America is and calling people like Donald Trump uh, fascist and uh, white supremacist and totalitarian and any other names that they can come up with. And by the way, it won't matter uh, if Donald Trump is not the nominee in 2024, if it's Ron DeSantis, if it's anybody, that person will then be the new, the new fascist because that's all they've got. They can't talk about crime, they can't talk about inflation, they can't talk about gas prices, they can't talk about Afghanistan. All they have is race card uh, and, uh, and arguing that uh, we are the party of social justice. And these guys over here are the party that wear the black hat in that fight for social justice.
1: Well, the, the last word from you, I want to ask you, in your opinion, what needs to be done to change the trajectory of our nation? How do we fight back? This program is called Common Sense, and you've got plenty of it. Well, the first step is, of course, to tell the truth. Uh,
0: And ultimately, if people realize what's going on, they, I believe, will will make a course correction. I've always believed that the captain of the Titanic, had he known the iceberg was ahead, would have taken corrective action. It's up to us. It's up to people who have positions of power and authority to tell the truth. The truth is hard work wins, and you get out of life what you put into it. And anybody that tells you otherwise is not your friend. Uh, We need to recognize the media, Hollywood, academia, and big tech are all left-wing, are all given the wrong message. And hopefully, if we tell the truth and say it persuasively and convincingly, we'll
1: wake up people one person at a time. Amen. Well, Larry, I just want to thank you so much, and not only for being on the program, but being willing to stay in the fray, uh, to take the slings and arrows, uh, recognizing that you could uh, be living a life of luxury and fun. And uh, God bless you.
0: Well, Dr. Carson, thank you so much. I feel the same way
1: about you. You
0: are a role model. You've always been one of my heroes. And please go to UncleTom.com to watch Uncle Tom 1 for free and UncleTom.com to uh, order Uncle Tom 2. Both of them are quite powerful. And I believe if enough people see those films, Dr. Carson, it can
1: change the narrative about race relations in America. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we're going to have to take a quick break. We'll be right back with a brief closing. Amen. common sense. Uh, we want to thank Larry Elder for taking time out of his busy schedule to be with us today talk about some very controversial uh, topics. Uh, Larry's never one to shy away from a debate and uh, from honest discourse, and we really want to uh, thank him for being with us today. It's time for a question from one of our viewers. Carla Reynolds from Houston, Texas, Ask, Dr. Carson, did you ever find corruption within HUD, and if so, how long had it been going on? (laughs) Boy, that's funny. Um, You know, you used to always hear all these stories about the corruption of HUD and the misappropriation of funds, and they had not had an audit for eight years when I got there. Federal law requires all federal agencies to have an audit every year. You couldn't have one because there were all these defects. You couldn't do it. So obviously the first thing we did was uh, get some appropriate accounting in there. We had to twist the arm of uh, one of the senior partners at uh, Ernst & Young. He finally relented and came and put together a team, and we were able to clean a lot of stuff up very quickly, which made it possible to get programs done. But there's still a lot of people there, and in all the federal agencies who've been there, for 20, 30, 40, even 50 years. And uh, they are the ones who kind of help facilitate things they agree with and slow down things they don't agree with. Uh, So no matter what kind of ideals you have, uh, you to some degree are constrained by those individuals. And that's probably one of the good reasons that we should think about putting federal agencies in different areas of the country so that those uh, career employees don't all come from the same place with the same political philosophy. I think that would make a big difference, something we need to be thinking about. And uh, now, with your common sense prescription for this week, you heard us talking about Saul Alinsky. I don't agree with almost anything he ever said, but I think It would be great for you to go to the library and get the book, Rules for Radicals, and read it. It's a short read. You can read it in one or two settings because it's so important to know what your adversaries are up to, what their modus operandi is. So that's your assignment for this week. And please subscribe for free, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts so that you never miss an episode. And remember to rate us, review us, let your friends and family know about us. And of course, i like to hear from you if you have questions. Ben at AmericanCornerstone.org. We always try to answer at least one of the questions uh, on each program. And uh, remember to treasure the cornerstones. Life, liberty, community, and faith. And until next week... Take care.